Hello and welcome to the Polemical History Podcast, the curfew edition. Today we're going to discuss history that borders on taboo. This is Tim Rudy. And this is Anthony Blackwell. And today we're talking about the polemical history of curfew. Two days ago, the French Prime Minister Jean Castex announced that a nationwide 6pm to 6am curfew, the European Union's longest, is due to come into force this evening. Uh, the rules of which are to be broadly similar to the curfew that is already in effect in other parts of the country. So for the past two days, uh, Tim and I, inspired by the topic of curfews, uh, hit the books as well as the keyboard. And uh, I personally was surprised to find so much that was relevant for this special episode, uh, but from a wide range of disparate sources. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, curfews are something that have been imposed in almost every country on earth, if not every country at some point, uh, for various reasons, mostly for political reasons, but also for uh, national disasters, whether it be it inclement weather or, uh, or as we know so dearly in this time for uh, global pandemics. But I think it's important that we differentiate between the different types of curfew and, and, and the one that we're going to focus on today. Um, broadly speaking, there are two types, emergency curfews and juvenile curfews. Uh, but we're going to focus on the former today. Uh, so that is a regulation requiring people to remain indoors between specified hours, typically at night. Makes sense. Um, unlike the history of juvenile curfews, the lack of dispute in mainstream conversations about emergency curfews proves that there's been very little research actually done on the topic. So although I found a lot that you know we thought was relevant to our polemical history podcast, um, According to William Ruffle, a professor of criminology at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, a researcher on the effectiveness of curfews, um, there is very little done in serious research um, about emergency curfews, and it's very difficult to pin down their history. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating because uh, curfews are definitely this tool that governments reach for uh, in certain situations, but uh, it kind of feels like something you have to do at certain times, certainly if the the city is burning to the ground in a massive riot, you know, civil unrest, it feels like a curfew is, you know, just logic, a logical step for the government to take uh, to try to prevent further uh, damage to property and, and further injuries and death. Um, but the effectiveness of curfews as a tool in controlling a people long term seems like a much deeper question, uh, much less uh, black and white uh, sort of you know, or, on, on its effectiveness. So we'll or get or interestingly, very much black and white in a racial sense, because you're kind of suggesting something that we're going to get to very shortly. Are you saying I was punny there? Was I punny? You were very punny. <laughs> <laughs> um, how How is your experience of, of this present curfew being, Tim? Uh, well, I, I feel torn on it because when the curfew was at 8 p.m., it wasn't ideal, but it was uh, tolerable. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly a, a party guy. I'm in my thirties now, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I would have complained more about an 8 PM curfew, but, uh, the fact that I get up early and go to work every day. And when I get home, I just want to kind of relax at home anyway. Uh, the 8 PM curfew wasn't a big deal, but I got to say this 6 PM curfew that we've had for the last week, uh, has been rough. So you, you get home from work and you don't even have time to do your grocery shopping sometimes. And 
you just have to you know run home and, and hide at home with uh with your family so it's could be worse but definitely far from ideal yeah when i began to think about the curfew and, and think about it sort of uh, systematically uh with a view to speaking about it today um i had to ask myself what the difference was between a lockdown and a curfew uh, i mean what is the difference is the former not just a prolonged state of curfew sure yeah a lockdown is could be well i suppose it can't really be described as a 24-hour curfew because you're allowed to leave but that's the idea the government wants you to stay at home as much as possible an interminable curfew mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. um Two days ago, when we decided to uh, pursue this topic, um, I had left you um, after work because Tim and I are, are, are colleagues, actually. We work at the same campus. Uh, we, we both work in international education. And we both have electric uh, scooters, or in France, um, they're known as trottinettes. Very, very manly, very manly. And uh, I, I left him and I was scooting home. And as I was gliding across the Esplanade at the Old Port in Marseille, it was crazy. Um, the the clocks turned six p.m. The curfew was in force. Okay, people were leaving the streets. You could you could you could feel that palp- palpable sense of urgency, and the church bells of the Saint Ferriol Les Augustins Church rang out uh, behind me. And I have to say, there was something very primal about it that appealed to my my atavistic soul to my historical imagination, something draconian, and I accelerated and I felt this this pressure to get back home um, before the, I don't know, before the police uh, caught me on the road. Yeah, or the uh, the town sheriff or something like that in your yeah. in imaginary uh, medieval mind. But uh, there's something exciting about it. Uh, yeah, it's something... Uh, I don't know, perhaps something in our collective imagination from the past. I think we're going to talk about the etymology of the word in a moment. And it reminded me also of, uh, of what, I, what I think was Marseille's last time to be under curfew. And that was when the uh, Gestapo imposed an 8 p.m. curfew on the citizens of Marseille in November 1942. When, uh, free you can France always so, count on the Nazis. Yeah. yeah, it always comes back to, uh, to World War II with, with us too. So, Anthony, uh, curfew, it, it sounds strange. Um, where does it come from? What is, that, what is the etymology behind that word? So, um, many of our listeners might already know this, but you know, for, those of, for those of you who don't, um, the, the word curfew comes from the old French word, couvre-feu, which means literally to cover fire. Um, the word entered English um, in Middle English. At around the time of the Norman inv- invasion of England, um, you know, at the time it denoted specifically a regulation requiring people to extinguish fires at a fixed hour in the evening, um, or a bell rung at that hour to remind them to do so. And so this uh, this curfew, this feu from medieval times, as I understand it, it wasn't really uh, an effort to control the people so much as to save the town from accidentally burning down during the night. Is that right? Um, well, that's what they say. Um, I mean, it, it, it operates as a verb, okay, so, you know, cover your fire, but also as a noun. Uh, the curfew is actually a utensil, too, um, normally found in, in houses of the well-to-do. It resembled a shield, and you'd place it at nighttime over the live fire when the curfew bell rang. This allowed the fire to be contained 
whilst allowing oxygen to breathe life into the embers. So with the help of a bellows, the next morning the fire could be brought back to life easily. Um, at that time, the fire, if you can imagine it, in, a, let's say, an Anglo-Saxon house would have been in the center of the living space um, and uh, the chimney would have been a, a circular opening in, in the roof above. And it was very, very dangerous. Uh, you can imagine all of these homes and buildings. They were, they were built of timber at the time. And, you know, you only have to think of the Great Fire of London in the year 1666, um, which, you know, illustrates the risk um, of fire in, in, in these olden towns. So that makes sense. And when I was reading that research, I was saying to myself, like, gosh, with a fire like that in the middle of the house and just an opening at the roof, it must have been so smoky all the time in that house. So imagine the kind of respiratory uh, problems these people must have developed at, at young ages. But at the same time, you kind of do have to you have to put out your fire, right? At the you can't keep the fire roaring all night because then you'd have to get up and add wood to it, and you, you, know, you might want to sleep through the night. So you can't do that every thirty minutes. Um, but that being said, you you know, in, especially in northern Europe, it must have been terribly cold during the night as well. Yeah, it's a sign uh, of how how differently we live our lives now. Uh, I mean, that would have been a practice that reached far back into the depths of time, and it's only in the last uh, well, 100 years, perhaps uh, 150 years, that we don't have to uh, worry about it or think about it so much, you know, apart from plugging out your TV before you go to bed. Yeah, we live like kings now. Um, you know, if, 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 if you do some research on this, you see a lot of um, references to the fact that it was... William the Conqueror, William the First, who, when he conquered England in 1068, um, instituted uh, the curfew law. Um, however, it seems that Alfred the Great, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon um, and West Saxon king of the ninth century, apparently he had a curfew law in place too, and it's you know that William the Conqueror just reinforced it more strictly. That's what I found too. Yeah, it was, William the Conqueror is well known for instating the curfew, but. You can imagine that it must have been around before him. It's just that he gets credit for it. Yeah, it must have. It must have been an ancient law. It makes sense. It's a, it's a very pragmatic sort of uh, regulation. Apparently, in early Roman times, um, curfew may possibly have served the political purpose as well as a public safety one by obliging people to keep within doors and thus preventing treasonable nocturnal assemblies, and generally assisting in the preservation of law and order. Like killing two birds with one stone, huh? with fire no i'm joking <laughs> do you want to say that again <laughs> no it's okay Go but you know this um this suspicion that it 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 it, it served a secondary purpose by uh, preventing treasonable activity um you know there's something to that uh, historians also believe that this was part of william de conqueror's purpose if you can imagine william de conqueror he, he had just newly conquered and occupied a, a foreign country. I mean, it must have been. Um, it must have been a very unstable time, um, a very trying time, and a very suspicious time. And apparently, the the couvre-feu law, the curfew law, was leveled mostly against the conquered Anglo-Saxons um, as a repressive measure to prevent rebellious meetings of the conquered English. So you're saying the Normans are basically like the Nazis of medieval times. That's. Not quite what I'm saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> correlation does not uh, equal uh, causation. Causation. <laughs> um, but in this context, William um, is said to have perhaps also prohibited the use of live fires to prevent associations and conspiracies. Um, 
I just had to mention Nazis. It had been like five minutes before we mentioned Nazis yeah. on the podcast. So. What's the name of that uh, fallacy? Uh, you know, eventually a conversation will turn back. Internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. <laughs> yeah, I think Tim's just doing it on purpose. Uh, he knows what our next episode is going to be about. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll keep that as a surprise. We don't want to uh, further promote uh, Mr. Godwin. <laughs> Um, in later centuries, the concern became less about uh, fire prevention and, and also less about uh, public order. And it sort of became associated with nightfall and uh, it became a tradition. Um, it is possible that the curfew bell um, from medieval times and, and before was eventually incorporated into the tradition of prayer bells and as a sort of aural beacon for lost travelers in the evening. Um, in current use, a curfew is rarely, if ever, sounded as a warning to cover fires, unless one interprets it in a, in a highly, highly figurative sense. And the current sense of the word, um, I believe, dates to the late 19th century. The first formal curfew order was introduced in 1918 by the British Board of Trade during World War One, which ordered shops and entertainment establishments to extinguish their lights by 10.30 p.m. in order to save fuel. That's what I read, too. That was the first modern curfew. It's just simply because you guys can't be using a ball or oil uh, all night long. <laughs> and in France, at about the same time, um, you know, similar orders were enacted. A blackout was implemented for Paris at the start of the Zeppelin campaign in the spring of 1915, um, but was later relaxed only to be reintroduced in the spring of 1918 when the Germans began using heavy bombers against the city. Whenever I think about curfew, though, um, and as a child, I remember, I, I kind of remember the associations the word would bring to mind. And uh, the most direct association was actually from World War II. If you think about the London Blitz of 1940 and the, and the blackout that people had to um, abide by, that, that was my first um, recall, um, mental recall, whenever I, whenever I heard the word curfew. Mr. Roberts! Mr. Roberts? I didn't know they were flashing tonight. I haven't been notified. I saw the home guard not going to at low tide. Not Mannering's mob. Well, no, that, that old Lance Corporal fell anyway, you know, that the... Ruddy hooligans! Put that light out! Put that ruddy light out! They can't hear you, Mr. Rogers. Oh, they can hear me! Put that light oh, out! I'll get him on the phone. I'll, I'll get Mannering. I'll tell him. I'll tell him quarters. I'll let him bust him. Put that light out! When I hear the word curfew, I think of a, a totalitarian state. I think of uh, maybe some, uh, you know, dystopian movies I've watched or books I've read where, uh, you know, some totalitarian state is trying to control the people. Uh, so for me, the word curfew has quite a malevolent sense to it, personally. Yeah, for, for me, it's um, it connotes, you know, trepidation. There's, I was fascinated as a child by this kind of um, obscure fear of, like, death from the sky you know, at night, coming out of the darkness and, you know, you, 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 you had no control over, uh, over your destiny. And I, th I think it was also because I, I, I was particularly struck by stories my, my parents or my, my grandparents told me about um, um, the, the few occasions, the rare occasions, but there were several when Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, was bombed, whether on purpose or by accident, by the Luftwaffe. And I remember in a local park next to my house, the Phoenix Park in Dublin, 
where uh, is located the Oros on Uktaran, which is the, the, the Irish president's uh, residence. Um, there is an artificial lake. And I remember my father telling me, we used to go there to collect chestnuts every, every autumn, um, that that lake was, uh, was artificial and it was essentially the crater of one of the German bombs. The, um, the Irish president's residence was actually um, damaged by one of these uh, German bombs. Oh, well. I, I have a question for you. Um, in Ireland, do you guys use it also just to mean uh, a, w- a word that a parent might use for a teenager? That, you, know, you have to be home by 8 every night. You have a curfew at 8. Yeah, ju- juvenile curfew, the hour that you're expected to be at home. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that idea of juvenile curfew, it dates from the 19th century also and child labor laws. Um, before that, uh, in the 1700s, in the U.S. and Europe, um, curfews were instituted uh, for workers and slaves, um, you know, directed at the uh, control of, of laborers. And then in the 19th century, when child labor was instituted more and more during the Industrial Revolution, um, juvenile curfews um, became de rigueur for, for uh, you know, controlling antisocial behavior uh, in the evening times. Gosh, if you ever feel like we're living through tough times right now and just uh, start reading about the 19th century, I guess you'll feel a lot better. Yeah, I like talking about the past. I don't particularly want to live there. <laughs> no, not unless you're very highborn or something like that. But even then, like you, life wasn't peachy for everyone. I was surprised to learn because I, I kind of, in my research, I, I digressed a little bit. Um, I got reminiscent and I, I renewed my interest in, in blackouts um, during World War II. Uh, you know, as a, as a countermeasure against the, the Blitz. But um, I was unaware of how um, destructive blackouts were on, on civilian morale on the home front. Apparently, they were one of the more unpleasant aspects of the war, um, disrupting many civilian activities and causing widespread grumbling. Um, it was enforced by air raid precaution wardens who would ensure that no buildings allowed the slightest peak or glow of light and offenders were liable to stringent legal penalties. So to my mind, that's a curfew. Yeah, that must have been horrible. Uh, apparently, too, uh, driving fatalities increased as a consequence due to the blackout restrictions, um, and uh, there were a lot of fatalities amongst merchant seamen falling into the docks at night and drowning during the blackout. And crime increased under cover of darkness. Um, there was lots of looting, theft, burglary, robbery, fraud and gang-related activities, including rape and murder, and even serial murder. Now, that's something I would like to read about, the serial killer who struck during the London Blitz blackout. The and Curfew that, Killer. The, the Curfew Killer. Sounds and that, like a great book. I mean, that's not... Um, that, that source of that information is the BBC History magazine, so... Yeah, and all this stuff... A lot of stock into it. All this stuff you're saying is very analogous to what's going on now. Um, of course, not the same... Uh, parameters but the same situation where I'm sure governments are thinking I I don't think they impose these curfews lightly or even these lockdowns lightly Um, they're they're really thinking about what is the what is the cost benefit analysis of imposing these curfews um, and these lockdowns because yes it does slow the virus down in most cases I'm sure uh, but the psychological suffering at home the fact that people aren't going to the doctor's office because they're too scared to get the virus uh, people delaying very important things. So this, what you're talking about here is very analogous to what we're experiencing today. Mm. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, the history of curfews in France, because 
well, you and I, we both live in France, and as of this evening, um, I mean, we have to get this conversation um, recorded before the curfew bell rings, um, and I'll be listening out for a, a, a literal curfew bell as I scoot home from the studio. Um, but let's start with the history of curfews in France, and then perhaps we can we can make some allusions to those of elsewhere. Yep, sounds good. Um, apparently, it's France's powers under state of emergency law that gives local governments the right to impose a curfew. And that state emergency law has its roots in Algeria's war of independence from France. Um, that war took place between 1954 and 62. And those seven or eight years, well, let's say seven years since the, the law came into effect, account for nearly every instance in which France has declared a state of emergency and imposed a curfew. The law passed on May 3rd, 1955, was meant to help the government to crack down on Algerian revolutionaries. So not so different from the curfew's original um, motivations, um, as mentioned, with respect to the Romans and to, and to William the Conqueror in the 11th century. Uh, the law, written specifically for the Algerian War of Independence, was designed to give the government as much power as it could without declaring a state of siege, uh, which would hand power over to the military for the duration of the crisis. At the time, the French Communist Party opposed the law, arguing that it could also be used within France's European borders to stifle political dissent and that the government was taking advantage of the situation in Algeria to give itself the option of extraordinary powers to be used against the French people. Um, however, the most, one of the most controversial applications of this curfew was when it was imposed uh, for French Muslims in Paris uh, who defied it on a fateful day in modern French history, October 17th, 1961, um, in a peaceful demonstration. The French police attacked, killing hundreds, a massacre the French government didn't acknowledge until 2012 when President Francois Hollande reversed 51 years of official denial. And the exact body count is still unknown, but it's estimated at at being around 200 and uh, I mean it, when you read about this this night in, I mean it's it's quite gruesome the details um, most of those victims were found floating um, dead in the in the River Seine they'd been thrown from the Clichy Bridge on the outskirts of Paris uh, the period is also known as the Paris Massacre of 1961. Isn't it amazing in the 20th century how governments were sometimes just uh able to impose laws on certain races, certain religions, certain types of people. Mm. Yeah, it, it, today, it, today it causes still um, a controversy in, in, in French history, in, in French public discourse, and would probably have still remained obscure if it weren't for the efforts of a, of a French historian by the name of Jean-Luc Anodi. Uh, I think that's the correct pronunciation, but I could be wrong. I'm wrong in most of my French pronunciation, unfortunately. And he doggedly pursued the case and published the results in his book, La Bataille de Paris, The Battle of Paris. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I said the 20th century, but I guess uh, good old uh, Donald Trump imposed a Muslim ban just not too long ago in the 21st century. Mm. Mm. Well, in 1991, when Einaudi published his account of events um, during the Paris massacre of 61, it, it caused a stir, as you can imagine, across France. Uh, French people were horrified to hear the details of a massacre by French police in the heart of the capital. And uh, he stated that these events couldn't be understood properly if you didn't bear in mind that France was in a state of colonial repression. 
this could be quite polemical, uh, perhaps uh, for our French listeners. Yeah. Um, since '91, great strides have been made in France. Uh, however, in raising awareness of these events, and these events are now mentioned in French history books. I'm happy to say. Yeah, the French history books are very polemical. We should definitely do a, a podcast on French history, how, the way French history is taught in France. Um, I think that would be really juicy. Actually, what we could do is get a couple of different history books from different countries and do a, a sort of a comparative uh, commentary. Yeah. Um, when when Hollande uh, apologized officially for the events of 61, uh, historians and leftist politicians and uh, many citizens of Algerian extraction applauded the move as overdue. Um but, you know, he also had his detractors who argued that he was saddling the Republic with undeserved guilt um, and the responsibilities, uh, moral and otherwise, that, that go along with it, um, citing it as dangerous for national cohesion. It's kind of hypocritical when you think about it, though, because uh, French President Jacques Chirac similarly um, apologized and uh, upended the official position. Um, on the 1942 roundup and deportation of nearly 13,000 Jews in Paris, acknowledging the Republic's responsibility in what had before been blamed on, on the German invaders. So we're back to Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> Every five minutes. So curfews are used in different ways around the world. We mentioned earlier that, of course, it's usually political, um, but they can be for disaster or emergency-related situations. Um, for the Americans listening out there, uh, you probably aren't too familiar with cur curfews because they're quite rare. Um, in the U.S., we've had, cur well, the recent memory curfews we've had uh, were either related to massive storms or natural disasters or unrest following usually the murder of a young black man uh, in 2015 it was Freddie Gray the murder of Freddie Gray by the police in Baltimore uh, and then in 2020 more recently uh, just last year it was the um, whether accidental or not based on your uh, political leanings murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis Minnesota um, of course after these in my view uh, heinous and unjust killings by the police. Um, after these killings, there were riots in the streets, buildings burning, total chaos, uh, out of control. Um, and so curfews just had to be imposed for at least a few nights, maybe even a few weeks following these uh, chaotic situations, which makes a lot of sense, I got to say, even though I'm, I'm generally on the side of the rioters, at least as long as they're not, you know, purposefully harming other people, you know, looting just for the fun of it, as long as they're trying to create chaos in order to bring attention to the Black Lives Matter movement, which I generally agree with, um, then I don't have a problem with that. But I do agree that the curfews need to be imposed just to keep some level of order, uh, because you don't want riots to be out of control for days and weeks on end. Uh, I think we can all agree a lot of people would end up in a bad place because of that, because of that. Um, so the, those are the more recent curfews imposed in the U.S. Um, like I said, 
some uh, really nasty storms in the, in the northeastern U.S. resulted in power outages and uh, curfews in even in Ontario, Canada, um, as well as uh, the northeastern United States. So those are the curfews we know. Um, curfews in the U.S. cannot just be imposed by Washington. You know, uh, soon to be President Joe Biden will not be able to say, uh, "Listen, to stop down the virus, everyone in the U.S. has to be home by 8. He that's out of his power. He's not allowed to do that. What he can do is he can ask and encourage and lobby state and local governments to impose some kind of curfew that makes sense in that state or in that city. Yeah, in the in, in the U.S., they have they, they're they're generally challenged on First Amendment grounds, aren't they? The, the right to protest. Yes, First Amendment is huge. That's our well, besides maybe the Second Amendment, that's our most sacred one. Uh, and also, yeah, other other amendments that followed, I believe the Fourth and the Fourteenth as well, um, which are just like civil liberties amendments. Um, we, we try in those states, we try to keep uh, as much power out of the executive branch as we can there in Washington, um, yeah. generally speaking. Other reasons you might see a curfew in the U.S. Uh, include juvenile, juvenile curfews. Um, so people under 18, you know, cannot be out past a certain hour unless they're accompanied by their parent or guardian. Uh, and these juvenile curfews are, of course, to protect juveniles themselves, but also just to protect the general population if uh, that particular area has a high rate of juvenile crime. Uh, one of the most interesting curfews I saw uh, that has, that's been imposed in the U.S. is the you-can't-drive curfew. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not like a normal curfew where you have to be at home at a certain time. You can go out to a restaurant, you can go outside and be with your friends and family, do whatever you want. You're just not allowed to drive. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, it shows how uh, disabled Americans are when you take their car keys away from them, um, especially Western, Western United States uh, Americans. Yeah. In fact, the efficacy of curfews, too, I believe, has been challenged in terms of uh, a means of controlling social unrest, especially with the advent of uh, social media, because you know, groups can still organize um, online and they don't physically need to be gathered in one, in one place to do so. Ah, when will we see the first internet curfew where 4chan shuts off at 8 p.m.? Mm. Get on that queue. You better find a, a defense for that one. Apparently, curfews were common in the U.S. during the Jim Crow era when white communities created so-called sundown towns. They sound pleasant, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you, when you, when you first hear that without understanding the context behind it. Is there going to be a party? No, it'll be it'll, it won't be a diverse party in any case. These sundown towns banned black Americans from residing in or even entering their neighborhoods in the evening. A few of them passed ordinances that made those curfews legal, while others enforced the rules informally with horrible signs on the, on the, on the side of town, on the edge of town, saying things like, don't let the sun go down on you in our town. That is so ominous. Yeah, that is really... Uh probably typical for the time unfortunately but yeah this sort of a uh, white intimidation of blacks you know that's like just ubiquitous in the 19th uh, I mean, that yeah. it sounds like i don't know a feature of a of a stephen king novel you know something out of salem's lot um these places were detailed in the negro motorist green book which was created by victor hugo green a harlem postal worker in 1936 and was a guide for african americans who wanted to navigate a segregated country um, listeners might recall the movie of the same name, Green Book, that came out a few years ago. Great movie. I loved it. Who was that with? It was uh, Viggo Mortensen and... Uh, Mahershal Ali. Oh, that's right. Oh, that was a great performance. They were a great duo. Yeah, that was, that was, a, that was a nice movie. Um, 
uh, violent. Well, if you've seen the movie, you'll you, you'll understand what what I'm what I'm speaking about right now. But violence and or death, the threat of that would often be the punishment for for breaking this curfew. Um, apparently, Green ceased publication of his guides following the 1964 Civil Rights Act, assuming there would be no need for it. But I'm not so sure if um, if that's the case today, unfortunately. Uh, these sundown towns spanned all across the United States and extended beyond small towns, large cities, and out into the suburbs. According to the historian James Lowen, they cropped up well into the mid-20th century, and by his count, there were about 10,000 towns with such rules in the 1960s. Incredible. Sundown towns. I had never heard of them. And they didn't just keep travelers out. The policies that made those towns unwelcoming to black people are part of a larger effort to keep the country segregated through housing discrimination, which is sort of slightly off topic today. But perhaps we could we could revisit this housing discrimination um, policy, official or unofficial, in another episode one day. Um, I was surprised too by this um, this sort of official unofficial policy of sundown towns. You know, I, I I'd seen the Green Book movie, but uh, I I wasn't aware of of the um, how widespread it was 10,000 in the 1960s that's crazy yeah yeah and we learn about Jim Crow laws in school uh, in the U.S. of course the separation uh, of water fountains and bathrooms and separate facilities and so forth but the sundown towns I never heard that one of the earliest use of curfews uh, to quell unrest was during the Harlem riots of 1943 in New York City these were sparked by the police shooting of a black soldier Um, but more generally the restrictions became a popular riot control tool beginning in the 1960s, including during uprisings in Philadelphia and Rochester in 64, the 65 Watts riots in Los Angeles. Uh, they were used in the Los Angeles riots of 92, ignited by the police beating of Rodney King. And more recently, as you mentioned earlier, Tim, um, in Ferguson, Missouri, um, following protests over the police shooting of, an, of the 18-year-old uh, Michael Brown in 2014, and there was similar use and length of curfews used city and statewide for the 2015 Baltimore riots following the death of Freddie Gray. One of the more interesting uh, situations where curfews are involved to me is in Turkey. Um, I, I went to Turkey. I was lucky enough to get to Turkey uh, right before the lockdown, actually, in early 2020. Uh, it was my last trip before the lockdown hit. Uh, just spent a week in uh, Istanbul and Cappadocia, um, which is in a southern, sort of south-central Turkey. Um, in Turkey, of course, they have a lot of Turks, I'll have you know, uh, but they also have a lot of Kurds, um, as, as well as a few other minorities. Uh, but the Kurds are by far the uh, number one minority, the the largest uh, in terms of population size of all the minorities in Turkey. And the Kurds are, if I'm not mistaken, the largest ethnic group in the world without their own state. Did you know that? Um, I didn't know that they were the largest in the world without their own state, but I was aware of the fact that they were stateless. Uh, very interesting, I find, but I don't know if you've ever read your, um, your classical Greek history, but there is a book um, entitled The Anabasis by Xenophon, which, just because it's in a ancient Greek uh, language, uh, you shouldn't um, let it um, put you off because, in fact, it's the story, the autobiographical story of Xenophon when he was a Greek mercenary uh, 
and he went to assist a brother in a civil war in the Persian Empire. And that army, that brother, was defeated en route to uh, Babylon. And uh, he and his Greek mercenary friends found themselves isolated in the heart of alien territory. And uh, in order to return to Greece, had to reach the Black Sea, the coast of the Black Sea, uh, which forced them to travel through Kurdish territory. And in fact, in the Anabasis, in his account of the expedition of the, of the Greeks back to, back to Greece, he, he, he describes kind of fleeing through the Kurds' territory and being, being attacked by the Kurds. I mean, yeah, as a, as a people, they're ancient. And as a, as a, as a state, okay, unofficially, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a people, as a, as a nation of people, they, yeah, they go way back. Oh sure, yeah. They've always been neighbors with the uh, the Armenians, uh, the the Mashriki people there in the, the Middle East. Um, yeah, so the Kurds are in uh, eastern Turkey, uh, northeastern Syria. Kind of mountainous uh, territory, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is in Anatolia, in eastern Anatolia. There, oh, they're they're not a you know, it's no Mount Everest over there, but they have some smaller mountains. Um, northwestern, northwestern Iraq. Uh, as well as I believe in Persia, like they have a Kurdish population there too. So the Kurds um, have a surprisingly recent uh, independence movement started in 1978 um, by a uh, university professor and his uh, his sort of corruption of the youth, if you're Turkish, I suppose that's the way you would put it. Um, he motivated his students to to start this uh, Kurdish independence movement. Um, which is really surprising to me. I thought their I thought their independence movement dated back centuries. Uh, you know, I think Greece won their independence, or the Greeks rather, won their independence from Turkey. Uh, I believe in 1820, 1830, something like that. So quite quite a long time ago. Whereas the Kurds are are still fighting for theirs, and apparently they haven't been fighting for it um, at least officially in this modern uh, form uh, for very long. So that's uh, only about a little over forty years they've been fighting for their independence. Anyway, um, so the Kurds, uh, there's about 20 million of them in Turkey, and uh, Turkey has a population of around 80 million. So that's a huge uh, minority in Turkey, right? That's, uh, you can't just ignore a quarter of your population. That's never going to work, right? So the Turks uh, have always taken um, a strong stance, let's, let's say, a strong stance towards the Kurds. Uh, so the answer has always been no. You know, the Kurds, uh, whenever they want more independence, more autonomy, Okay, well, let me walk that back a, li a little bit. The Turks have given the Kurds some autonomy, but it's extremely limited when you look at maybe even, for example, the autonomy that French Guiana has, you know, under France, or uh, even the the amount of autonomy that states give uh, that the United States gives to individual states. So the Kurds have limited autonomy, and the Turks have always been very hard on the on the Kurds. And you know, trying not to be biased here, but you you got to kind of say the Turks have kind of slaughtered the Kurds in massive numbers, you know, mur mass murdered them. Um, I guess, la I guess last year's trip to Turkey was my last trip to Turkey. I'll ever make cause I'm now I'm on a list uh, and they'll just refuse my entry at the border. Uh, but anyway, Erdogan being a strong man who's been in power for, I think over 10 years now, um, he doesn't really appreciate the PKK or the Kurds making any sort of, uh, moves towards independence or autonomy. And as, you, as it so happens, in 2015, uh, in late 2015, 
the Turks imposed a curfew. It wasn't the first curfew. Uh, it won't, won't be the last on the Kurds. Um, it's just the latest uh, major curfew of note uh, in the Turkish Kurdish in the Turkish Kurdish conflict. It was in Sur. Uh, that's S U R, Sur Sur. I don't know how to pronounce it. In uh, the sort of the the capital of Turkish Kurdistan, which is uh, Diyarbakir. Um, so that's in southeastern Turkey, just near the border with Syria and Iraq. Um, so like I said, in 2015, the Turks imposed a curfew on the Kurds. Uh, this was a 24-hour curfew. So I don't know how many examples there are of this uh, in history. I was kind of just surprised to see that it was 24 hours. Uh, that's, I mean, it's basically like a lockdown, isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, so a 24-hour curfew is just really incredible uh it seems kind of harsh not only that but water and electricity were cut to the kurds and sometimes they were in, in some areas they weren't even allowed to do grocery shopping so if you have no water no electricity it's winter in southeastern turkey it's cold and you can't leave the house it sounds almost like uh ethnic cleansing to me for me this is the problem discussing curfews this is where i hit a sort of a wall or a difficulty in terms of how to proceed because you know, speaking about curfews and emergency curfews, once you get into the military applications of curfews in times of war or you, I know I know the state or relationship that exists between the Kurds and, 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 and the Turks, you know, that might be disputed as war or not war. But, uh, but once you get into these sort of situations, um, you know, I, I think of a, a similar parallel between, I mean, the, the condition of... Um, of things in, in Gaza, for example, in the Gaza Strip, uh, Absolutely. The, the Palestinians under the Israeli occupation in the West Bank. I mean, it gets difficult then to be precise in one's language um, when when discussing curfews, because I mean, at what point is the curfew? Are you not talk? Are you no longer talking about a curfew, and are you talking about a military occupation or a whole other host of, of, of related issues? Um, that was my difficulty. That's right. Yeah, I think like so many topics in history, it's easy just to get led on to, uh, just to get off the, the beaten path and go on tangents. So the Turks had the curfew in place on the Kurds for uh, three months. So from December to February, uh, uh, December 2015 to February 2016. And it was a little bit of a rough curfew because not only were they forced to stay inside, like I said, with sometimes no water, no electricity, no electricity and no food, but they were also being bombed uh, by the Turks. And at one point, um, a group of about nine civilians, this is according to Amnesty International, a group of nine civilian Kurds uh, left the curfew zone waving a white flag, and the Turkish military promptly shot them to pieces, somehow killing only three of them, not all nine of them. Um, And the Turkish media, the Turkish TV, just claimed uh, that they had killed three terrorists that day. You know, all in a day, all in a day's work, um, they got three terror, three more terrorists out of the way. Uh, so this is, I, I find it very fascinating. I think the Turkish-Kurdish conflict is maybe not as fascinating as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but it's a very fascinating one. I think it's um, a, a sensitive one too. Mm-hmm. And I uh, think perhaps it's something we could explore at, at at greater length in a future episode, perhaps because it's something that not everyone is very aware of absolutely absolutely I'm, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people who, who 
who may have just heard the word curd in relation to um, cheese curds. What? <laughs> that that and also perhaps in 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 the media with coverage um, of the efforts against ISIS, for example, and the Kurds have been heroic um, in in that conflict. Right. And, uh, you know, it's not the only way to oppress a people. You see in Western China, um, they don't have curfews on the, the Uyghurs. They just stick them in uh, internment camps, I suppose. That's the thing. So when are we no longer talking about a curfew precisely and of curfews as just one tool in a, in a large toolkit of uh, military uh, oppression? But I suppose oppression is a loaded term as well. It implies um, that you're critical um, in this case, uh, you know, perhaps you are critical, but um, I suppose uh, curfews too are effective um, in certain cases as a as a legitimate um, tactic in, in law and order. Um, perhaps more complicated in the instances that we've talked about today, um, such as in the United States and in France, um, with the racial baggage um, in both that curfews have in both those countries. Um, another area that I'm particularly interested in and would love to talk about. Uh, and again, perhaps we'll table this for another day and another show, but is the curfew implemented on um, Japanese Americans um, after the attack on Pearl Harbor when the entire West Coast of the United States was labeled a, a theater of war? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, again, the danger is when discussing this particular curfew very quickly, um, that case study evolves into uh, into a, into another topic i suppose a question of internment in the united states of japanese americans uh, of japanese americans and, and other illegal aliens however the japanese americans it seems were were, were targeted um, a lot more than italian americans and german americans etc um i i also would like to talk about uh, some infamous curfews in in my own country's history um in northern ireland for for, for example um, specifically the Civil Authority Special Powers Act um, of 1922 and the Falls curfew, but perhaps we'll leave those also for another day. Um, and uh, your research on on the Kurds uh, with respect to Turkey also reminded me of um, a lot that I uncovered about the use of curfews by governments in, in North Africa throughout the Middle East during the Arab Spring. Oh, yes, I did want to talk about that, too. Uh, that should be, I mean, both the, the Middle East is full of polemical po potential polemical podcasts, isn't it? Mm, yeah, and I know we have, a, we have a list of perspective ideas, which will take us years to get through. But, uh, you know, hopefully as we, as we take this project forward, um, we'll, we'll get around to some of the things that, um, that interest us and that are, uh, you know, potentially very contestable and... Um, and, and before we go, I just wanted to maybe discuss real quickly with you, what do you think the effectiveness or legitimacy of curfews is uh, with, you know, for example, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I said how uh, in Black Lives Matter, even if you agree with the Black Lives Matter movements, a curfew seems like a very reasonable and necessary thing to put in place just to help uh, reduce the chaos going on in the city. So, do do you think in pol in political curfews are they effective? Are they are they just? Well, according to the professor of criminology um, that I cited earlier, William Ruffle, um, he 
argues that emergency curfews, so the type of curfews that we've been talking about today, they are effective. Um, but I guess, as with anything, um, you have to pay attention to to the context of your environment and a curfew in the United States um, in response to um, civic demonstrations against systemic uh, racial injustice is probably not the most sensitive or effective uh, response. Um, likewise, in, in many of the cases we discussed today, because I suppose we are focusing on controversial curfews. So that was curfews on the Polemical History Podcast. Thank you for listening. This was episode two. Um, we hope to keep them coming. Uh, if you have any suggestions, you can contact us on social media. We are on uh, Instagram and Twitter with the handle at PolemicalCast. Uh, Polemical is P-O-L-E-M-I-C-A-L. Um, for more episodes, you can catch us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Um, and yeah, that's a wrap. Anything you would like to say, Anthony? Let us know what polemical history you'd like to hear discussed next. Contact details in the show notes below. Please try to leave out Nazis from your suggestions. We got enough of those. Mm-hmm.